Um, go ahead and look through the notices. Uh, pretty much self-explanatory in there. Everything's on schedule for today. Uh, new members class tonight at uh, uh, 6.30, uh, prayer at 5.30, so um, love to have you uh, for both of those things if you want to. And then there's some other stuff coming up too that's in the bulletin, so make sure that you look at the bulletin, and there's some, some good information there. Okay, uh, was it one comment, so one, one thing I do need to tell you about. Uh, so CCLS, we had talked about uh, the micro school. They did not get the attendance they were looking for, and so I think the plan now is to push it back to next year and take a run at starting it up next year and to give another year to do more recruitment. But we'll keep you updated on that. Just so some of you have asked, they are not going to be starting this fall down in the basement. So and if you have any questions about that, you can talk to me or Will's here. Uh, you can talk to him. And um, I guess, I, is there anything else we're missing? I can't think of anything. Stand with me and then we'll, um, let me pray for us and pray that God would be with us. Uh, this morning in worship, and then we'll uh, get going. Father, we come to you as really needy people. We are not here because uh, we need affirmation or because uh, we need to be convinced that our theology is uh, assured that our theology is right or anything like that. We're here because we're broken, and our relationships are broken, and our bodies are broken, and our minds and our emotions are broken, and we desperately need your help. We need you to continue fixing us. And so, uh, come, Holy Spirit, uh, blow into this place with fresh wind and transform us into Christ-like people. Shape us and mold us to be better and more faithful image reflectors of you. And uh, give us love for each other and give us love for you and for knowing you better and purify our doctrine. May we think better thoughts and may we feel better feelings and may we make better decisions. We need you to do this for us. And so we pray this in the name of the one who's promised to be our judge and to be our true king and to do these things in us and through us and for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let us then confess our sins to God our Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
Psalm 26, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 29, and if you can, pay uh, real good attention to it because it's referenced in the sermon text. Jesus is going to quote this in the sermon text. And and I'll try to explain a few things as we go along here because it's a little bit confusing. Isaiah says, the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. You don't understand it and you don't want to understand it. And he gives a couple of examples for what he means. When men give it to one who can read saying, read this, he says, read this, he says, I can't for it's sealed. In other words, to hand a book that's been closed up 
And he says, I can't read that because it's closed. And when they give the book to one who can't read, he said, in saying, read this, he says, I can't read. Instead of saying, I can't read, let's find somebody else who can read it. They don't have the ability to understand it and they don't have the desire to understand it. And the Lord said this. Now this is what Jesus quotes in the gospel reading. Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. That's a little bit of a surprise because you expect them to say, you don't understand, and so, you know, you're in big trouble. But he says, you don't understand, so I'm going to do a bunch of wonders to fix it so that you do understand. And first of all, I'm going to subvert your teachers and your wise people. Verse 15, ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. That would be an upside down way of thinking about God, to think that we can use him for our benefit. Instead, he's the creator and we are the ones who've been created. Is it not yet, here's God's gonna do some good stuff here in verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor, a man, the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, epistle reading, we've been working our way through Ephesians. And now we get to the famous uh, text about husbands and wives, which actually ends up being about Jesus and his relationship with the church, as you'll see at the end. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And if we can have Nathan come forward. Nathan, is Nathan Rundles in the house. There he is. Nathan's going to come forward. Come up here, stand on the other side. And Kai and Sandy, too, uh, come up here as well. So stand right there. It's perfect. So Nathan is uh, uh, one of Sandy's kids, and he was on the mission trip this summer. And Nathan's a believer in Jesus and a follower of Jesus and uh, wants to be baptized. And so he's getting baptized this morning. 
Baptism, I, you know, I just talked about this with Molly when Molly got baptized a few weeks ago, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it. Except just to emphasize again that baptism, that what's happening this morning is Nathan is not, I mean, Nathan's getting baptized, but it's not something that Nathan is doing. It's primarily in Scripture. It's, it's always in the New Testament talked about as something that God is doing to Nathan. Baptism is never a work that we accomplish, you know, to show off our faith or to demonstrate that we're believers. It's always a gift of God. And so when I baptize Nathan in a minute, uh, I'm going to baptize him, not in Nathan's name or in my name, but in the name of uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who's baptizing Nathan. And what's happening is, is, um, Nathan is uh, Nathan's a Christian. He believes in Jesus. The Bible teaches that, First uh, Peter teaches that baptism saves by connecting us to the resurrection of Jesus. And so the gift of sanctification and holiness and grace is being, Nathan knows the Bible, he's read the Bible, he's heard the Bible taught. Now it's being applied to his skin physically, much like I said last week, talking about communion, much like a hug physically gives us God's love, gives each other our love for us. A communion and baptism give us God's love physically, the love that we already know exists because his word tells us. The other thing that it's doing, though, too, is that baptism is functioning as a sign and seal of the righteousness that Jesus has given Nathan by faith. And so, basically, God is putting his mark on Nathan. Nathan now has a new uniform. Nathan now, he's no longer playing on Team Nathan or, you know, Team Money or Team Video Games or whatever Team Nathan's been on lately. All those things are important now, but now his fundamental identity is he's a Jesus person. He's been called and marked by God. God's, in, God's engraven him on the palm of his hands. And so, um, Nathan... Uh, receive the sign of the cross upon your forehead and upon your heart, marking you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified and risen. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would be with Nathan and just where you've brought him and the love that you've given him through Sandy and through the youth group and through the church and through his friends, that you would continue uh, growing him up in the love of Jesus Christ. And that, Father, as he is being committed to you and is making a commitment to you, that you would keep him going on this lifelong journey of faith and grace and knowledge of you. May he experience uh, growth uh, intellectually in your good doctrine and your word. May he experience growth emotionally as he comes to love you and to serve you more deeply. May his decision-making, may it come more and more increasingly over the course of his Christian life to reflect you and your will and your values. Uh, Give him uh, assurance all the time that you are the God who chose him that you are the God who loves him, that you are the God who in Jesus Christ put your sign upon him and give him comfort and hope in that throughout his days. Keep him faithful to the faith. Keep him faithful to your son, Jesus, who died and rose for him all the days of his life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Nathan, I'm gonna ask you a few questions and uh, Sandy and Kai too, you can answer as well, being sponsors of Nathan's. And um, I'll cue you at the end of the questions too so you know what to say. Do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? If so, say, yes, I do. Do you believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? If so, say, yes, I believe. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried? He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. If you believe in this Jesus, say, yes, I believe. And do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting? If so, say, yes, I believe. Do you desire to be baptized? Then, lean forward here. You might want to take your glasses off too, yeah. Then Nathan Rundles, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Nice work. May God, who has caused you to be born again of water and of the Spirit, and has forgiven all your sins, strengthen you with his grace unto life everlasting. The Lord preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Amen. You all may return to your seat, and we will sing the sermon hymn.
Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And now for two verses, Mark's, you see the little parentheses there in your bulletin. Mark's going to give an explanation for why the Jews washed their hands and stuff like that. This is one of the ways that we know that Mark was not written for Jewish, a Jewish context. It was written probably for a Roman context. People who didn't understand anything about why Jews would want to wash their hands before they eat. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written? And then he quotes our text that we just read from Isaiah 29. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. In many such things you do. This is the gospel of the Lord. Okay, you can be seated. So Jesus has been doing miracle after miracle and powerful deed after powerful deed. And then, you know, we took a break for the past three weeks to look at John 6. Uh, where we explored what the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 means. And Jesus says, you know, essentially, I'm the bread of life. You're not going to get it unless my Father, the Holy Spirit, draws me to you. And um, unless you feed on my flesh, unless you drink my blood, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We talked about that. And now we're back to it in Mark, going back to Mark 7. Jesus is going to continue his miracles in a couple of weeks, we'll get to, he feel, he, he's going to heal the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. But for the next two weeks, there's a conversation that Jesus is going to have with some Pharisees about, this is real interesting, Jesus is doing these powerful miracles. And so he needs, they've got a question, like, are you in or are you out? Are you, Jesus, are you on the good team or are you on the bad team? And so uh, the Pharisees are going to come, that's basically what's happening this Sunday and then our text next Sunday as well. So, and the question of, you know, which team are you on revolves around, do you wash your hands before you eat? Do you wash your hands before you eat? Um, and I hope you do. I hope you do. But that's not the point of what Jesus is saying here. Um, for the Jews, washing hands before they eat, you guys know this. I mean, you can sort of sense this from the text. It's really not about physical cleanliness, right? It's not about, like, you know, hygiene. You shouldn't eat with dirty hands. It's more of a religious, a ritual thing. Uh, and so it's possible. So um, ritualistic washing, like this described here, actually, interestingly enough, the, the word baptism is used here in, in the description of washing of hands. Ritualistic washing and being clean because your body's dirty, these, are, these two things might not overlap. They may or may not overlap. 
uh, Jacob Neusner, the uh, uh, Jewish scholar, he's actually a Jewish scholar, he's a Jew, but he's, he's a scholar, his specialty is the Christian New Testament, so he's a super interesting guy to read. He says this, uh, describing how this works. If you touch a reptile, you know, in, in the Jewish, reptiles are unclean animals. If you touch a reptile, you may not be dirty physically, but you are unclean. If you undergo a ritual immersion, if you undergo one of these wash, washings, you may not be free of dirt, but you are clean. Like to wash your hands, you might have, still have dirt on your hands, but you're ritually clean. But you might have like, you know, squeaky clean hands. But if you, I don't know why you would touch a lizard. But if you touched a lizard, you wouldn't be allowed to enter into the temple because you'd be as clean as your body is. You'd be ritually unclean. You guys understand the point. A rite of purification involving the sprinkling of water mixed with the ashes of a red heifer probably will not remove a great deal of dirt, but it will remove impurity. So you understand the difference between like dirt on the physical body and ritual impurity. That's what they're talking about here. Your disciples aren't like ritually, uh, they're not ritually cleaning their hands. Why is this so important to the Pharisees? I heard a lot of sermons like on text about the Pharisees like over the course of my life. That, so if you're, if, you're, if, if you didn't grow up in Christian church, this is gonna be kind of weird to you. Uh, but if you, do, if you did, you probably heard these sermons too about these Pharisees, man, they're so petty and small-minded. Like, can you imagine being like, hey, have you washed your hands? Like, that's so small-minded. Actually, um, it's not small-minded. The Pharisees are not dumb. They're also super sincere. I know Jesus is gonna call them hypocrites in a minute. But what he means is, he's, well, we'll get to what he means in a second. He doesn't mean that they're like liars or that they're like faking it. They're super sincere. And what they're actually talking about, what they're concerned about with the washing of hands is super important uh, for a couple of reasons. So let me, let me give you these two reasons. First of all, the washing of hands was commanded in the Old Testament. You're to wash your hands before you eat. But it was never given to everybody. Go back and read Exodus 39 whenever you get a chance. The commandment to wash hands is only for the priest. The common person, it wasn't necessary for them to wash their hands and their feet before they ate food. But for the priest, it was in the Old Testament. Right? So what's going on there? A couple things. One is, now this is a little bit historical, so like if history is not your thing, like I don't know, maybe I'll give you a signal in a minute that I'm done. The Sadducees who ran the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, some of you know the, the, the word Sadducee. The Sadducees and the Pharisees who are talking to Jesus right now did not get along. Like their theologies were different. They didn't get along. The Pharisees said about the Sadducees, the Sadducees were the group that ran the temple. Like them guys are working for Rome because Rome, the, the temple was basically Rome-sponsored. Herod built it. Rome assigned every year, Rome chose the next high priest, um, they chose it from the Jewish priests, but they, Rome got to choose them. And so the Pharisees are like, that temple's corrupt. And those priests are corrupt. They're not real priests. And so by washing their hands before they eat, which is something only priests do, one of the things the Pharisees are saying is, is that we will be the new priests. We will be what those bad guys aren't. We will live up to that high standard. The second thing they're doing is this. Some of you know this. I talk about this a lot in here. Uh, the main problem in the story of the Gospels is Rome is in charge and the Jews aren't. Why is Rome in charge? Well, there's political answers, certainly. But if you ask a Pharisee, why is Rome in charge? You know what they would say? Because in Deuteronomy, in 30, Deuteronomy 37, God told us that if we disobey him, 
and we violate his commands, he's going to put foreign overlords over us and drive us into exile. And that's exactly what's happening. Why is Herod in charge? Why is Tiberius Caesar in charge? Because we have not obeyed God's laws. What are we going to do about it? We're going to obey God's laws. And we're going to take God's laws. And whatever God's laws say to do, we're going to do double. We're going to ramp it up. Do you see, they're not, they're not like dumb people. They're not being petty. What they're saying is, is they're so concerned that they obey God's law that they're going to take it so seriously. But what I want you to know is that the issue is Rome. The issue is Rome. Like, we're being holy, Jesus, so that God will look at us and say, yes, they finally repented and obeyed. Now I'm going to get rid of Rome and I'm going to establish them as a free people. What are you doing, Jesus? You're actually, if your disciples aren't washing their hands, you're not really playing ball. You're not helping us out here on this project. Do you see what's at stake here? When they come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples wash hands? It's not this petty thing about washing hands. It's actually explosive. They're questioning, their, they're questioning Jesus' political an ideological identity. Who are you? Are you on the inside or are you on the outside? Now, in case anybody in here might be like, that still feels petty to me. Like, washing hands, big deal. Like, I debated whether or not I should say what I'm about to say next because I thought, like, I don't want to say this and this be the only thing people hear in the sermon. So if I say this, will you promise me that you can just move on, you know, quickly in 30 seconds? I'm not advocating one way or the other, Okay on the position of I'm just offering it up there. If anybody in this room says, like, I don't get it, like, how can, like, washing hands be such a big deal? Well, you, you, you've lived this for a year and a half now, right? Wearing masks. Is that about wearing masks, or is it about something deeper than that? Is it about political and ideological identity? Well, you know it is. And I'm not saying, I'm not, just, I'm not siding with either one of those sides, but, like, wearing masks is, is, is like washing hands here. Why aren't you wearing masks? You know that's not just an innocent question. Like, you know that like, oh, I forgot mine. Isn't an appropriate answer. Like, what, what the person's after there is like, what is your identity? Who are you siding with? Who is the true American here? Okay, now, like I said, that's just an example. We're moving on now. Don't get stuck there. That's what the, that's what the, that's what the Pharisees are saying to Jesus. It's not just about clean hands. It's not just about a ritual. It's about whose side are you on? What's your identity? You know Why? Because what they think that God wants is faithfulness to signs, faithfulness to man-made traditions. That's what they think that God wants. And that by being faithful to these man-made signs, like God will be happy with them. However, it's what, what they think God wants. But what does God really want? Well, let's listen to God talk. Verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So see what you, I want you to unpack what Jesus is saying here real quick. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart, no, they're, they're, yeah, I mean, it's actually their hands that they're honoring God with by doing these rituals that God commanded the priest in Exodus 39. But their heart is far from me. You see what Jesus wants there? He's like, you're giving me your lips. You're giving me a part of you, but you're not giving me your heart. You're giving me your hands, Great, you've got clean hands coming in to eat, but you've not given me your heart. What I want is your heart. Okay, so now we need to talk about it. So that's what God wants, right? He doesn't just want your clean hands. He wants your heart. Now we need to talk about what does heart mean? Because it's, if I say to, to, to you, okay, so if you're not sitting in a Christian church and I talk about heart, almost all of us hear a mixture of emotion 
and decision-making ability. That's what, in our culture, that's what we usually mean by heart. Like if I say, follow your heart, or you know, obey the dictates of your heart, usually what I mean is like, uh, by the way, I, I, I would never say that. Don't follow your heart. Your heart is uh, desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Um, but if I did say that, what I would mean is, like, look deep inside yourself. What do you really want? What is it that you, what is your true happiness? You need to go after that. What am I saying? When I say, when I use the word heart, I mean, like, your emotions and, like, your desires. These two things, your emotions and your, your feelings and what you want. That's, what, that's the way we use heart. Now, let me say this. Heart actually includes both those things. But it's much more than that in Scripture. Let me give you, uh, this is a definition by Leon Morris in the New Bible Dictionary. Which, by the way, if you don't have the New Bible Dictionary, you probably should get a Bible Dictionary if you don't have one. And the New Bible Dictionary is a really good one. Here's how Leon Morris, uh, he's a New Testament scholar, he's Anglican, he's from uh, Australia. Here's how he defines heart biblically. The heart, he says, is essentially the whole person with all of his attributes, physical, intellectual, and psychological. The heart was conceived of in the Bible, the biblical word, as the governing center for all these things. So basically when you use the word heart from the Bible, you mean like the whole person, right? Let me give you some examples real quick, just in case you're not on board with me. And I should just prove stuff like this anyway. Jesus in Luke 24, uh, Jesus in, in Luke chapter 24 meets with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they find out that they've been actually walking and talking with Jesus and they're so, and you know, Jesus breaks the bread with them, which is a really cool uh, uh, Eucharistic moment. And when he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. And they see, and then one of the disciples says, didn't our hearts burn within us when we talked to him on the way? What are they saying? Like, we were talking with Jesus, and like, weren't you fired up emotionally? Like, weren't you super excited that you were with Jesus? Like, looking back on it now, there was something going on. Like, we thought we were just walking with this guy who was coming from Jerusalem. But looking back on it now, like, weren't you fired up? What, what, how's Luke using the word heart there? He means emotions. Your heart is where your emotions are at. Let me, another example here. Mark chapter 2. Jesus is going to, he's about to heal this guy who's uh, paralyzed. His friends let him down from the ceiling. And um, so, some of the scribes and Pharisees, some of the same people who are meeting with Jesus here, are like thinking, hey, this guy shouldn't be claiming to forgive sins. And Jesus says, it says, Mark says, Jesus knew that they were questioning in their hearts, that, you know, his right to say these sort of, what are they doing? They're questioning, this is a mental thing, it's a mental activity. Their heart, your heart in the Bible is the seat of your mental activity as well. It's an intellectual organ, your heart is. I mean, the Bible talks about mind sometimes, but usually when it talks about how you think, it talks about your heart. One more, uh, two more actually. Mark chapter three, um, some people, Jesus is doing miracles, we read about this a few months ago. Jesus is doing these miracles, and there are people who don't believe in him, and Mark says, their hearts were hardened. What does that mean? It means they didn't want to believe in Jesus. Like they rejected Jesus. They did not, they, they, their hearts were hardened and they did not decide to follow Jesus. There, the heart is the place where you make your decisions. One more example. And then we got four pieces I'm going to put together in just a second. Well, the Bible's going to put together in just a second. 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says that when the new, uh, the new covenant happens, God is going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh, um, which basically means you're not going to be hard-hearted anymore. You're going to be tender-hearted. But there's another example where heart is used actually physically of, of your body. Now, put all these together. What does the heart mean in the Bible? It means your emotions. It means your mind, your, your thoughts, your brain. It means uh, your decision, your volition, your decision-making equipment. 
and it means your body. It means all these things. And now, okay, so put all those together and come back to hear what Jesus is saying. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You honor me with a part of you, but what I want is all of you, and all of you is far from me. And he calls them hypocrites. Now, here's a good biblical definition of what hypocrisy is here, okay? Let me give this to you. This is what Jesus means. Giving God one part of ourself, in their case, you know, their clean hands or their lips, giving God one part of ourself as a cover for not giving God every part of ourself. Giving God one part of ourself, one part of your life, as a cover for not giving God all of yourself. And then, second part, building out traditions to protect that one part. All right, so giving God one part of yourself as a cover for not giving him all of yourself and then building out traditions to protect that one part of yourself. All right, I'll give you an example. Actually, let's let Jesus give us an example. Look down at verse nine, this, this weird little story that we read at the end of the gospel reading. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. But, but that, that's sarcastic in Greek and it's sarcastic in English as well. Jesus is being kind of a, a smart aleck there. You have a really great way of doing this. You're good at this. You do this with grace and panache, almost like you've practiced this. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And here's an example he says. So Moses says, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So this is the fourth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God. Okay, so you don't know what this is. Corban, though, is a word that means like an offering. There's a way to do this. Like, so if you have money in, um, in Jewish law, let's say you have money, and upon your death, you want to devote that money to the temple, to the maintenance and the upkeep and the ongoing, in Jesus' day, the ongoing remodeling of the temple. You could almost like a trust. You could say, when I die, that money's going to go to the temple. Now, if you did that, you have access to that money. It's almost like a, a, you know, a savings account that you can withdraw from. The temple can use that money, but you can withdraw from it and put money back. And one of the things they're doing, they're saying is this, is you take that money and you put it in the temple and you say, okay, that money is given to God. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But then your mom or your dad is like, hey, I'm in a jam. You know, there's no social security in this culture. Your parents aren't able to work anymore. They rely upon their family to care for them. And you say, I'm sorry, but that money has been devoted to God. You're going to have to get help elsewhere. Jesus is saying what you're doing is, is you're taking this tradition of depositing money in the temple bank and using that, although it's fine. It's a good tradition. You know, you're actually supporting the work of the temple, but you're using that to subvert the commitment that you made to obey the fourth commandment. You're not honoring your parents. You're using your traditions to set aside this greater commandment. You're taking one part and you're building out traditions to protect that one part so that you don't have to obey on either other parts. Now, let's make this practical just for a second. And I'm about to do this, and sometimes I get in trouble doing this. I say get in trouble, nobody's ever like shot at me or anything like that. But sometimes people are like, I don't care for you talking like that about you know, X, Y, or Z. I'm gonna try and bash on just about everybody for the next few minutes, okay? So like if I'm bashing on your favorite brand of Christianity, like just hold on, I'll... You know, I'll get, I'll get around to your least favorite in a minute if that makes you feel better. Here's what Christians do. Well, the temptation. Not on, you, know, you know, God delivers from this. The Holy Spirit is so powerful, and he works great things in our hearts. But our, our, our temptation, though, is to do this. 
is to take one part of who we are as human beings and emphasize that to the exclusion of the other parts and then build up traditions to protect that one part, just like the Pharisees are doing here. So some, some elements of the Christian church are more like, you guys know this, you've been around, and a bunch of you have come from churches like this, are more emotional. And they emphasize like the emotional component of humanity and say, this is how you experience God. You really need to feel the power of God. You need to have these ecstatic experiences to the exclusion of other parts, right? And th- this is, God wants your emotions. Certainly that's a part of your heart, but he wants the whole thing. I have, um, again, I, so I'm, I'm going to bash on a bunch of different people here. I had a student in my Lewis and Clark class this summer in my comparative religion class. And we always talk about, you end up talking a lot of times with Christians will end up telling their stories. And so many of them are like, yeah, I used to go to church and I don't go to church anymore. And uh, this girl, I don't think she's listening today, but if she is, hi, Audrey. Uh, she said, I grew, up, I grew up Pentecostal. And we emphasized a lot worship services and experiences, ecstatic experiences of the Spirit. But when I became a high schooler, I started to ask questions. And my church basically said, you're getting too close to doubt. What you just need to do is you need to get back to worship and experiencing these things. And then she said, I just ended up bailing. I need more than that. Well, of course she does. She has a brain too, right? Now, I'm not, this is not all Pentecostal churches are like this, but this was her experience. You know, I pray for my students at Lewis and Clark, by the way, too, because so many of them are like this, where they've grown up Christian and then they've fallen away. What's happened here? Well, this church that she went to prioritized one aspect of her humanity at the exclusion of others. And Jesus wants to say to Audrey, your emotions, you honor me with your emotions, but the rest of you is far from me. Um, let's, do, uh, let's do another one here. Oh, this is fun. No, it's not fun. It always makes me feel like real awkward. Uh, intellectual, like your brain, right? Doctrinal, in this case, it's not feelings or, you know, ecstatic connection with, uh, or, or, you know, a personal feeling of being close to God that's important. It's like your doctrine. This is like the LCMS way of doing this, right? And other churches that are more doctrinally oriented, where doctrinal rigor is the marker. I told the, I, uh, some, of you, some of you know what I'm talking about and some of you won't. Um, but for those of you, for, for those who have ears to hear, you'll know what I mean when I say, if I'm having a conversation with somebody and they start to doubt if I'm really serious about my Lutheranism, all I have to do is say, well, I believe, teach, and confess, X. And if I say the words believe, teach, and confess together, for those who have ears to hear, you understand what I'm saying. People are, oh yeah, he's a good Lutheran. Because I pulled out one of the signs. I pulled out the hand washing. Like if I know some phrase from the book of Concord and I can break it out like that. Why is that? Because there's certain things that we prioritize, intellectual, doctrinal assent, and then we set up signs to protect that thing, right? And so, you know, I talked to, I, honestly, this is a question. Anytime like you do like a church revitalization like a bunch of us have done here at St. James, questions will come up about like, well, why aren't you using the organ? Why aren't you, you know, uh, uh, all different kinds of things, well, the, the, the tone of the service or... Um, you say things sometimes that aren't exactly like Lutheran. Somebody told me one time, like, I really, somebody told me what this is actually at a previous church, previous Lutheran church. I really appreciate what, what you said, but you're going to come, you're going to end up in front of doctrinal review sometime. And I'm like, what did I say? And they're like, I don't think it was anything wrong, but it just wasn't like the believe, teach, and confess stuff. It wasn't the normal stuff. So what we do is we like, you know, like, I've talked about this before. Like, the liturgy is great. I love the liturgy. And the reason why is because it's 2,000 years old. 
And when we do the liturgy, we are connecting with the church from thousands and thousands of years and all over the world. But honestly, like we could scrap the liturgy and still have like a Christian church. Are you aware of that? And now some of, that, some of you, that makes you uncomfortable. And you know why? It's because there's this part and we've got the signs that protect that part. And I'm not, telling, I'm not telling you at all that I'm going to get rid of that part because some of these signs are good. God does want this. But what we've done is we've put ourselves in a position where we're honoring God with our lips or with our brain, but our hearts are far from him. Look, God does not just want you to intellectually assent to the small catechism. That's not good enough. That does not put you in a spot where you are automatically right with God because I believe teaching confess what Luther said in the small catechism. We honor him with our brains, but our hearts are far from him. Like our brains are, are important. I'm not, again, like don't listen, don't hear, don't, hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. Our emotions aren't unimportant. Our brains aren't unimportant. God wants the whole thing though, okay? He wants you to have good doctrine, but he also wants you to passionately feel his love for you. He wants you to have experiences where you experience his presence. He wants, you what it, he, he wants you to know what it's like to walk in the spirit every minute of every day. He also wants you to be intellectually rigorous, to never be satisfied with a soft intellectual Christianity, which is like, oh, doctrine doesn't matter. It just divides. What we really need is more Jesus in some sort of vague way. I'm going to get to a more specific way to say that in just a minute. Third example, the volition. This is also a part of our hearts. Let me bash on the church that I grew up in a little bit. You also understand, too, when I say bash, I'm being a little bit sarcastic. Like it's not, it's, 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 I think that it's my job as a Christian pastor not to say, you're right and they're wrong and hoorah for our side. Like we're all wrong. That's like Christianity, that's like the first tenet of Christianity is we're all depraved, right? So like we're all wrong. The point is like, let's find out where we're wrong and confess it and repent. I grew up in a church that privileged not doctrine, not emotions, but you just need to decide to follow Jesus. You need to come forward and give your life to Jesus. You need to make the decision that you're going to be a disciple of Christ. And like if people who are interested in doctrine, man, they're just like eggheads. What really matters is like this commitment, this radical commitment that you make. People who like experience, if, if somebody starts to raise their hand in the church that I grew up in during songs, like, oh my gosh, look, don't, don't look at them. They're trying to drag you away. Like you need, your focus needs to be on like, I have decided to follow Jesus. Well, I have tons of friends who walked away from that. You know why? It's not enough. First of all, you can't decide to follow Jesus in a way that's actually going to work. Like I'm, you, you should decide to follow Jesus. But actually, at the end of the day, your decision can't actually keep you safe in the arms of Jesus. Jesus decides that you're going to follow him, and that's what keeps us safe. But second of all, like I grew up like this. I need more. I need more. I need more truth from God's word. I don't need just to be told, Aaron, like, try hard to do a better job. Like, I need to know what the deep heart and mind of God is. I need more experience. I don't want to come to church and it be a pep talk for like, get out there and be a better Christian, Aaron. Like, I want to feel God's presence. I want to know his love for me, tangibly feel his love for me. I want the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through me. I need more. Last one. Well, no, let's just move on from there because I'm running out of time. I also don't want to test your patience here. What do all these people have in common? What do LCMS people have? The three that I mentioned, LCMS churches, Pentecostal churches, the Baptist church, the independent fundamental Baptist churches I grew up in, and every other church that exists. We could do this with every church. We could do it with every group. What do we all have in common? We have this temptation to give God one part of ourselves and then to value that above all the other parts and then build out traditions to protect that one part and thus create signs. Are you wearing a mask? Have you decided to follow Jesus? Have you felt the power of the Holy Spirit? What do you believe, teach, and confess? 
all these things are great questions, but they can function as, you know, are, do you wash your hands kind of questions. Are you in or are you out? Now, what's, what's the antidote? What does God want from us? Well, of course, he wants all of our heart, but how can we get there? And the answer is, here in the, here in the story, the answer is true worship. True, ascribing true worth to Jesus, the King of Kings, will over the course of our life together as a Christian community start to bring all these things into place. Now, some of you are more intellectually bent. Some of you are more emotionally bent. Some of you more are like decision makers and let's get some stuff done around here. Some of you are more tactile and physical. Jesus is all four of those things. The Christian church, the body needs all four of those things, not to the exclusion of the others because God wants our heart. He wants to build up all four of these things together in St. James. And here's how he does it. By worshiping the one true God. Look at verse seven again. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Okay, so that's largely negative, right? But you can see what Jesus means there. He, just, he means they worship in vain because they teach for, you know, his doctrine, the commandments of men. Instead, what they need, actually, the antidote is real, full-bodied worship. Full-hearted, full-minded, full-bodied worship. That's what they need instead of focusing on uh, the commandments of men. How do we do this? What does it mean to worship God? Okay, what does it mean to worship Jesus in this text? Uh, turn, me, turn with me. Can, can you turn back to the um, Isaiah reading in the Old Testament? Um, reading from today from Isaiah 29, where Jesus says, because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are from... It's interesting that Jesus quotes this because the Pharisees know this text, right? I mean, they grew up reading their Bibles, so they know what's going on here. Jesus quotes this text but the whole point of the text is not to say, stop worshiping me with just your lips and start worshiping me with your heart. The whole point of the text is to say, you don't worship me with your lips, and so now I'm about to remedy that. And how's the, what's the remedy here? The remedy for their partial-bodied worship is not, okay, so some of you are more emotional and less intellectual and the remedy is not like, okay, so maybe you should take a seminary class to really bone up intellectually. That's not the remedy. For those of you who are more like intellectual, not emotional, the, 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 um, you know, the remedy is not, well, you know, maybe go to therapy and start like releasing your emotions. But, but these things might, may or may not be helpful. But actually, the heart of the remedy is well, Isaiah 29. Actually, let me just read it for you. The remedy is this. Look down at verse 18. In that day, here's how God's going to deal with the people who don't worship wholeheartedly. Verse 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Who does that sound like to you? Well, it sounds like Jesus, right? I mean, when Jesus comes and he starts healing lame people, and giving hearing to deaf people, and giving sight to blind people, and giving joy to the poor in spirit, and lifting up the hearts of the political prisoners and the downcast, one of the things that he's doing is he's saying, this is me. I'm going to fix this. Look, you worship me just partially, and so you worship me wrongly. But like, turn to me. I'm the one who's here. This, he, he doesn't have directions for how to be a better Christian. He's saying, you want to be fixed? Me. Get, ascribe worth to me. That's your new sign. Your new sign is not hand washing. Your new sign is not that we have candles up here at the front of the service. Your new sign is not that the bozo who's up there preaching wears a stole. That's not the new sign. The new sign is Jesus of Nazareth. And all the other stuff may or may not be helpful. It doesn't matter if the organ is playing or if guitars are playing. It doesn't matter if we're sitting on pews or chairs. It doesn't matter like, you know, if people 
bow when they come up for communion or they don't bow. It doesn't matter like if I'm wearing the stole or not wearing the stole. All that stuff, if it helps you, awesome. If it doesn't help you, ignore it. What matters is Jesus of Nazareth, the one who can heal the whole world. See, here, here's my problem. is like this stole doesn't actually make me love Jesus more. It serves a certain function. If you want me to explain it to you, I can. I, I have what I think is a legitimate answer for it. These candles don't help me understand the doctrine of divine grace more. They serve certain functions. We can take them or leave them. Here's what I'm saying. Like the little signs that I set up to protect my Lutheranism, they don't actually save me. Like I'm a deaf man and a blind man and a lame man. Like I don't treat my wife right. I don't treat you right. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I'm a coveter. I'm an adulterer. I'm, an, I'm a murderer. And washing my hands doesn't help me at all. What I need is the sweet blood of Jesus Christ. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I need the love of God the Father. And when that all starts to come together and I realize that what this is about is this connection with the eternally wise God, intellect is certainly important, the eternally loving God, emotionally is, emotion is certainly important, the eternally physical God, our phys, our, our, the, the physicality of all of this is certainly important. Once I start realizing that this is not about like me and my signs and my group and my are you in or are you out, this is about Jesus. My heart will be turned to true worship and then he's going to start bit by bit grabbing all those pieces. My mind is going to start thinking Jesus' thoughts. My emotions are going to start feeling Jesus' feelings. My decision-making equipment is going to start making decision, Jesus' decisions. My body is going to start doing Jesus' things because he's the Lord of the universe. He doesn't want just our lips. He doesn't want just our clean hands. He wants our hearts. He's determined to do powerful things to them. That's what his kingdom is about. All right, stand with me and let's, have, let's pray then have communion. Let's pray. God, we thank you that, uh, again, this, I, I prayed this same prayer to you last week, Father. We thank you that you are the God who fixes all of us. That you are the God who's determined to, with your body, heal our body. With your soul, heal our soul. With your mind, heal our mind. With your emotions, Jesus, your pure emotions, heal our emotions. With your perfect decision-making equipment, Holy Spirit, to heal our decision-making equipment. God, Lord Jesus, with your perfect body to raise up our bodies on the last day and make them whole again. We thank you, God, that you've not left us partially cured, that you've not just cured our lips, but you've cured all of us. May we, by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your word and sacraments, come to worship you with all of our heart. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray this morning for our sister churches, our sister LCMS churches in the area. Bless and keep them safe in your kingdom. We pray for all of our gospel preaching churches in this area, Lord. Bless and keep all of us safe in your kingdom. May we see it grow leaps and bounds by the power of your gospel. Father, we pray this morning for your church all over the whole world, and especially this morning for your church in Afghanistan and our brothers and sisters right there who right now at this moment are having to decide to either be killed or abandon your name. And Father, give them grace and give them hope and give them comfort. And it feels so trivial to pray this from this air-conditioned room thousands of miles away. But Father, when it comes our time to die, whatever the circumstances, Father, give us the grace to proclaim your sweet name with all joy and all assurance that you are the great God who loves us. And convince all of us, Father, wherever we're at and whatever circumstances we're at, and especially we pray for them this morning, as many of them are fighting for their lives for the sake of the gospel. Father, convince all of us that you are going to make and are in the process now of making all things new. 
in spite of what our circumstances look like, that you have committed to this resurrection project and that you are going to raise our bodies up from the dead and recreate everything. Lord, in your mercy. Father, uh, we also pray um, as we begin another school year here for all the students here, uh, for the kindergartners and the uh, grammar school kids and junior high and high school and college kids and grad students who we have here, that you would bless them and strengthen them uh, this school year as they study. Uh, use their studies to prepare them for uh, their future vocation, vocations. Use their lives in their school and their current vocations to be salt and light for you and give them joy in knowing you. Uh, give them insight into uh, the vocations you have for them now, wherever they're at. Be with our students and uh, our, our people who work in administration at schools now, God, and give them a good year. And bless them and keep them safe, and may they be faithful servants of you and shine forth your light faithfully. We pray this morning by name for all of our teachers, um, for Katie and for Will and for Jared and for Dave, for Jen and Shanna and Susie and Ruth and Chrissy and Amy, that you would bless all of these and any whose names, forgive me, that I might have forgotten. Bless all of these, God, with the power of your Holy Spirit and allow them to be faithful witnesses to your love and to your grace. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we come before you fully cognizant of the fact that we do not deserve to be able to enter into your throne room, that this is a gift of your grace that we're allowed to come in here, that you've chosen us, that you've redeemed us, that you're sanctifying us now. And so we can only come in here under the auspices of the beautiful blood of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Confess with me the words of the Nicene Creed, if you will. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. 
When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he said, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Amen.
Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with his countenance and give you peace. Amen. The odds are that there's somebody in this room that you've never spoken to before. Like make it sort of a, a scavenger hunt game to find that person and start talking to them. Go in peace.